I'd like to welcome everyone here. This is our final Generations Gathering before we break for summer, and we welcome all the folks from the Inklings class, and as well as our own um, C.S. Lewis scholar, Brian McGreevy. Brian is going to start us off tonight, um, and then I'm going to come back and recap the year. But um, you're in for a real treat. Many of you know Brian well, but he is um, one of our rectors here. He is the clergy over the generations, which is the grandparents' ministry. He has, so he has, a, and he has a vested interest because he's also a grandfather. He and his wife, Jane, are parents of four grown children and grandparents of two. And um, Brian is, as you know, humorous, and he's um, deep, and he's relatable, and he's just an, a marvelous communicator. So he's going to share with us a little bit about C.S. Lewis's literature for children. And we're thrilled to have the class that he teaches um, C.S. Lewis with us tonight. Um, so let's hear Brian. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lynn. I am very excited to be here to talk about this. And it may not be just quite exactly what you were expecting when you came in, uh, but I hope it will be more useful, perhaps, than what you were expecting. And I'm hoping that as we walk through why C.S. Lewis is such an important resource for grandparents and parents who are interested in trying to share their faith with their children and grandchildren, I hope that you will find some new ideas that you can take with you or talk about with your friends that will be a blessing. But before we go into that, uh, let us begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the gift of families and for the gift of children and grandchildren. Lord, we pray that as we live in this culture that is post-Christian, that you would help us to be able to find new and creative ways to speak the truth of your gospel, your life-saving and life-changing word, into those we love. Lord, we pray your blessing on our time this night and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to be flying through a lot of material tonight, uh, but I would commend to you some of the resources that are over here on this table. There are a couple little handouts, and then there are some different books that are either the Chronicles of Narnia or books that are about C.S. Lewis and children um, that you may find helpful. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about Lewis, Narnia, and the power of story. And if any of you happened to be at the Mere Anglicanism Conference several years ago where N.T. Wright and Alistair McGrath spoke, uh, it was a wonderful conference, but part of what they were saying is that the culture that we live in is aggressively secular, and people may not be interested in hearing anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're profoundly interested in stories. And so if you have a story that's a good story, most people will give you a hearing. And that is one of the great gifts that we have with C.S. Lewis and Narnia, because this power of story is something that we can use um, as an asset in sharing the gospel. So I want to talk a little bit about why Lewis and why Lewis is important, but 
I want to first do what we do every week in our Lewis class and say together this verse from Philippians, because this verse is such an important uh, thing to understand about setting your mind on the kingdom of God and on the things that point us to his kingdom. So if you would join me in saying this verse from Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And I could spend all of our time just talking about that verse, but I want to just point out the intentionality of where you set your mind. And that is particularly important for you as grandparents, and it's also important as you think about your grandchildren and the culture in which they live, where there is a fire hose of a culture that is radically opposed to Christianity that is coming at them all the time. So for you to be able to set your mind on the things that are of the kingdom of God will be a great boon to your family. And just as a little background for those of you who are not so familiar with C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis was originally an atheist, um, a brilliant, brilliant man who was converted through his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien, um, the writer of The Lord of the Rings. They were both genius professors at Oxford uh, in the 1930s. And they formed around themselves a group called the Inklings. And this was a group that was radical and that it was avowedly and forthrightly Christian and very involved with writing. And this group mounted a countercultural offensive in the despair after World War I and launched this campaign through their writings and their speaking about how to live and think Christianly in a post-Christian world. Lewis was one of the first people to say that it was a post-Christian world even as early as the 1930s. And they often used the power of story and they wanted to recover these ideas of the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty, which were hallmarks of the Christian faith up through the Middle Ages, but were largely lost in the Enlightenment. And that's a concept that we're going to come back to when we talk about your children. But they wanted to come back to those transcendentals, to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also the power of true fellowship. Lewis is a really unlikely person to have become a Christian. Um, he was uh, aggressively and brilliantly atheistic. He had a painful and dysfunctional childhood. His mother died when he was eight years old, and he was shipped off to boarding school at the age of nine in a different country. And he wrote these plaintive letters home saying, please bring me home. The headmaster and the school here are crazy. And his father basically ignored it and said, buck up. And um, a year later, the headmaster was taken away in a straitjacket um, for insanity and was confined for the rest of his life. Um, Lewis lost some of his best friends in World War I. He was sent to the front line of the Battle of the Somme at the age of 19 on his birthday. And his 
sergeant who was really the one who was helping him know the ropes and all of that, with whom he really bonded, um, threw himself in front of Lewis to save Lewis, and the sergeant was blown up in front of him. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And after that, he said there couldn't be a god if there was something like World War I, and he had a hard, brittle, and brilliant atheism. But he had this idea of Zainzuk, the stab of joy that kept hitting him, and so um, he couldn't figure out what that was, the sense that there was something more that he wasn't experiencing. And then through Tolkien's influence, he had a profound conversion to Christianity. And he didn't just convert partway. He became what his secretary called the most thoroughly converted man I have ever met. And he was a remarkable, remarkable person, a scholar, teacher, author, friend, mentor, a great proponent of expressing what it means to live and think Christianly in every aspect of life. He was authentic. He was deeply humble. One of my favorite stories about him is he used to walk to and from work, and he would stop at the butcher shop on the way home um, to get the meat. And from time to time when he would stop, it was almost closing time, and so he'd ask the butcher if he wanted to go to the pub and get a pint with him. And so he became friends with this butcher, and the butcher had no idea that C.S. Lewis was anything other than just an ordinary guy, even though he, at this point he'd been on the cover of Time magazine in the United States and was the second most recognized voice in the UK after Winston Churchill. And when Lewis died, the butcher heard that he died and went to the funeral and was just shocked to discover that his buddy from the bar was famous. Um, Lewis had a gift for analogy and for story. He had a heart after God. Uh, one of the remarkable things that a lot of people don't know is that when he became famous and his books started making money, he established a blind trust for the benefit of widows and orphans and all of the money from all of his books was given away to charity. But most of all, one of the things I love about him is you could call him the apostle of joy. Lewis believed that joy was the hallmark of the true Christian, and you see that bubbling out of all of his writings, which is one of the reasons they're so great for children. So I wanted to talk a little bit about why Lewis is not just someone who's interesting, but why he's somebody that I think is vitally important if you are concerned about your grandchildren and about their worldview and about their faith, I think Lewis is one of the most important people that you can know about because of his work in the idea of breaking the spell of secular enchantment. We don't think about secularism as being an enchantment, but Lewis saw everything through the realm of story, and he said it was as if our world had had an evil spell laid on it that said there is no God, there is no right and wrong, there is no hope, there is no beauty, there is no goodness. And he said we need the most powerful spell that we can get to break that enchantment. And he said the good news is we have that because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful tool that there is against secularism. And if you see um, under this uh, captivating the imagination, Lewis believed a good story could captivate the imagination and sneak past what he called the watchful dragons of dogmatic rationalism. That you can use a story 
to make a point that no one would accept in an argument, but when you put it in the form of a story, it hits the heart first and then transfers to the mind. So Lewis wrote a lot of books trying to talk about truth, but in a way that was palatable to people. And these books became bestsellers, and I love this letter. Lewis was great friends with this brilliant nun named Sister Penelope, and they had a wonderful correspondence. But one time he wrote her, any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under cover of romance or fiction without their knowing it. And that is one of the glories of the Chronicles of Narnia, is that they are filled with theology. And those of you that have been in the Lewis class where we spent since February unpacking the silver chair, which is not even a very long book, but it is full of the theology of the atonement, the, the theology of Jesus is the only way, the theology of everlasting life. I mean, it really is just absolutely incredible what is packed into these stories. But part of the reason that Lewis is so important when we think about grandparent ministry is his humility and approachability with children. And I love, uh, one of the things we're gonna talk about tonight is this book um, that's over on the resource table that is called Letters to Children. One of the things you may not know is that C.S. Lewis answered every letter he ever got from anyone. And when the Narnia Chronicles came out, children from all over the world started writing to him and he wrote all of those children back, which is just astounding. And some of those letters have been collected, and they are just beautiful. But I love this quotation from one of them. He says, old people can be quite as shy with young people as young people can be with old. This explains what must seem to you, the child, the idiotic way in which so many grown-ups talk to you. I don't think age matters so much as people think. Parts of me are still 12, and I think other parts were already 50 when I was 12. So I don't feel it very odd that they, the Narnia children, grow up in Narnia while they're still children in England. And this quotation from Mere Christianity, the truly humble man will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And Lewis talks so beautifully to children in these letters. And there's a lot that we can learn from that. Being able to communicate to children without talking down to them is a learned skill, and it's one that we're not very good at in our culture. We have been taught that adults are adults and children are children, and we forget that children have gifts that we don't have as adults. Their gift of wonder is far greater than it is for most of us. So beginning to approach them with respect and what we might be able to learn from them is part of the way that Lewis manages this. And there's a great little quotation from Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham, where he said, Jack, which is what people called Lewis, was the exact opposite of all the stepmothers in the fairy tales. He was kind, jolly, and generous. We explored the woods together and went for walks. Sometimes Jack would give me some pages of things he was writing and ask if I liked them. I usually did, but if I didn't, he was the kind of man who would listen to what I said. One of the things that's remarkable is that Lewis had some of his former students critique the Chronicles of Narnia. And Lewis is famous at this point, and he would listen to their critique and rewrote many of them 
based on those critiques. I just want to read you a short excerpt from one of his letters. This is a letter to um, a boy named Martin in 1956. Dear Martin, it was nice to hear from you, and I know very well what it's like when there's always something to do. The funny thing is that I was far worse about writing letters when I had far fewer to write. Now that I have a lot to write, I've just got to do them all first thing in the morning. I am so sorry for you having been bandaged all these months. Did it itch dreadfully under the bandage where one can't get at it? I know I did when I was bandaged for ages after my wound in the war. But isn't it lovely when at last you do get that bandage off? Seeing your own skin again is almost like meeting an old friend. I suppose your exams are all over by now. I hope you did very well. Give my love to all the others at your house. We are all well. We're bringing up a ginger kitten at present. It behaves very much like what your baby sister, Deborah, does. Yours, C.S. Lewis. This is from one of the most brilliant men in the world at the height of his Oxford career. Uh, he has a gift there that we can learn from because we have these letters. So part of the, uh, what is really great is that Lewis, in these stories, through the figure of Aslan, shows us what Jesus is like in a really, really profound way. And there was a little boy who had written um, to Lewis because he was worried that he loved Aslan more than he loved Jesus. And this is what Lewis wrote back to the boy's mother. Lawrence can't really love Aslan more than Jesus, even if he feels that's what he's doing. For the things he loves Aslan for doing or saying are simply the things Jesus really did and said. So that when Lawrence thinks he's loving Aslan, he's really loving Jesus. If I were Lawrence, I'd just say in my prayers something like this. Dear God, if the things I've been thinking and feeling about those books are things you don't like and are bad for me, please take away those feelings and thoughts. But if they're not bad, then please stop me from worrying about them and help me every day to love you more in the way that really matters far more than any feelings or imaginations by doing what you want and growing more like you. That is the sort of things Lawrence should say for himself, but it would be kind and Christian-like if, Christian -like if he then added, and if Mr. Lewis has worried any other children by his books or done them any harm, then please forgive him and help him never to do it again. It's just beautiful and shows that profound humility. So the first application, I want to really encourage you to write letters to your grandchildren. I don't care how bad your handwriting is, how busy you are, or anything else. I really want to encourage you to do that. This is one of the most meaningful ways that you can impact your grandchildren's lives. And if you get frustrated with how busy they are, or if they're always on their phone when they're with you, or they want to be playing their video game, I can guarantee you if they get a letter from you in the mail, you will have their complete and undivided attention. Letter writing is a dying art, and if they get a handwritten letter with a stamp on it in the mail, they will be so excited they hardly know what to do. Lewis's letters are a great example of seeing how he communicated a winsome, self-effacing style that's not lectures, that's generally, genuinely interested in them, but shares little snippets of truth. So you can also encourage your grandchildren to write you back, which they may or may not do. Um, just because they don't write you back doesn't mean that you can't keep writing them. 
And one of the things grandchildren love is to hear stories from your own life put in their terms. And stories from the past about what a rotary phone was like. Anything like that that's beyond their experience will seem like a fairy tale to them. But you can also talk about your travels, your childhood, and your faith in Jesus, because that is part of who you are. And you can use humor. And one of the things I love, you'll see these if you thumb through this book, Lewis used to put little drawings in there. He would like draw an elephant, or he would draw a little picture of a horse or something like that. Um, they're just very winsome and approachable. And even if your grandchildren don't write you back, uh, continuing to write them will give them something to look forward to, and it will be a way that you can speak into their lives when you have gone to be with the Lord. We actually have in our family Bible a little letter, I'm not quite sure to whom it was written, that is from sometime in the 19th century that quotes some psalms. And it is a beautiful thing to have somebody from a previous generation speaking that to us. So one of the other things, if I convince you to use the Narnia stories with your grandchildren, which I hope I will, uh, you can write about them. You can write about the characters in them or moments in the story that you liked. Even if your grandchildren live on your block, write them a letter anyway. And if your child, your grandchild is a believer, you can do Bible study with them through the mail. I know a young man in high school who has a Bible study with his great-grandfather where they write each other every two weeks, and he said it is the thing that has helped him stay on the path spiritually through high school. So why Narnia matters so much, I'm gonna run out of time, so I'm gonna talk fast. Um, part of the thing you may not know is that the school, and I don't care which school it is unless they are homeschooled, there's an aggressively secular narrative in virtually every school in this area and indeed in this country. And you've got to counter that because if your children buy in to those worldview assumptions, it's gonna be very hard for them to understand the gospel because it will counter all of those things. So they need to understand that there's more than one worldview. And the difference is, are you an accident, meaningless products of a random process? There is no meaning, purpose, or anything beautiful. Or are you a precious creation of a loving God who made you for something special? These two stories are completely opposite and incompatible. But you see that with Lewis and Narnia, because is Narnia really the realm of Queen Jadis, the White Witch? Which is it? Queen Jadis or the White Witch? Is she the rightful ruler or is she the usurper who's suppressing the truth? So the story helps children realize there's more than one way of interpreting reality. And I'm just gonna skip this. This is um, from Alistair McGrath, who's one of the most brilliant people in the world. He holds three doctorates from Oxford, one in molecular biophysics, um, a doctorate in divinity and theology, and a doctorate in intellectual history. And he says the Narnia stories are the best thing going for training children about developing a Christian worldview. And it's the whole idea, the Narnia stories start with a good and beautiful creation that's spoiled by an evil power, and then the working out of what happens when a redeemer comes in and saves that creation, and then at the very end of the story, 
that creation is restored and all things are transformed. That might sound a little bit like the Bible, but that's what happens in Narnia as well. So the Chronicles of Narnia, more relevant today than ever. One thing you might not know is Netflix, the biggest deal that they did this year was to acquire the rights to the Chronicles of Narnia. And it would be nice to think that they want to promulgate a Christian worldview, and that's why they did it. But the reason they did it is their market research people tell them that that is the thing out of everything that's out there that will sell the best right now. There is huge cultural interest in Narnia and Lewis right now. And so this is a beautiful bridge that the Lord has given us. These films have made over $500 million. Um, they've won all sorts of awards. It's an amazing thing. So how do you use these stories? The first thing is read them yourself. If you haven't read these stories since you were five, please do yourself a favor and read them again. They are full of joy and wonder. They are great read-aloud books if you're with your grandchildren, starting probably around age three if they are a little precocious, maybe age five if they're too wiggly. Uh, but reading them out loud is wonderful. And this particular edition with the illustrations by Pauline Baines is just terrific. The chapters are really short, um, and it's just such a great read-aloud book. Eight to ten-year-olds can read them on their own. Um, they're great to give as gifts. The movies can be a great resource, and you can talk about who's your favorite character? What was your favorite scene? What choice faced this character, and how did it change the story? Um, or you can, with an older grandchild who's eight and up, suggest that you both read the chapter and then mark your favorite passage, and then when you get together, talk about that passage and why you liked it. There's so much you can do, and there's some great ancillary products to start discussion. Um, this Roar guide is a great guide that you can get from Amazon that's a Christian family guide to the Chronicles of Narnia. It's got little activities, it's got discussion questions, all of that. Um, the Narnian Virtues Project, um, there's a handout that I would really encourage you to get. Uh, one of the great things about the Narnia books is that woven into the narrative, besides the life-saving gospel of Jesus expressed through Aslan and his sacrifice, all of the Christian virtues are also woven in there. And you see these characters making choices based on that. Also, the Chronicles of Narnia coloring book is awesome. They've taken... Um, Pauline Bain's illustrations, blown them up, taken the color out, and then you can, or your grandchildren, I actually enjoyed this book. Um, but children enjoy it even more, um, coloring those in. So the set, um, I would particularly commend the boxed set, which is over there, that has the illustrations. And um, just to close, um, Lewis, in writing a letter to Sophia about the Chronicles of Narnia, he said, I don't say let us represent Christ as Aslan. I say, supposing there was a world like Narnia, and supposing like ours, it needed redemption, let us imagine what sort of incarnation and passion and resurrection Christ would have there. It is a beautiful, beautiful gift that we have been given. So I encourage you uh, to look at some of these resources. Um, feel free to call me or shoot me an email if you have questions about how you can use these as a blessing in your family. Thank you for listening, and I'm going to turn things over to Len and her folks.
you're speaking to this. Okay. Was that magnificent or what? We, I think we could all listen to him all night. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. And what a wonderful send-off for us grandparents for the summer to read with and to our grandchildren some of these C.S. Lewis um, books. Um, tonight, I want to, we are certainly glad to have all the other folks here from Brian's class, but we, our generation's ministry, which is the grandparents' ministry at St. Philip's, started back in November, but it actually started because of Peter Rothermel, who is head of Christian formation at our diocese, who, with Kathy Jacobs, about seven years ago started a grand camp at Camp St. Christopher. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to go by on Lynn McCormick um, a couple of years ago. And after the second year, I thought, you know, this is so good, and we need to share this with our church. And Peter said, yes, that's exactly what I'm, I'm interested in. As wonderful as Grand Camp is, it's five power-packed days with your grandchild. Um, this, what you do for the whole year is what really makes a difference in your grandchild's, your grandchildren's lives. So Peter was all for this, and we, we asked Jeff Miller, our rector, about it. He said, that'd be great. Go to Amy Watson-Smith, and Amy, of course, is in charge of children and family ministries at St. Philip's, and she let me know, let us know, that this is really part of what she does. So she's been a huge advocate and a huge part of this ministry. So we formed a small committee and decided to begin having meetings like this where we could come together and have a speaker and help, help us to understand better what it means not just to have a relationship with our grandchildren, but to, have, um, to pass on the legacy of faith to our grandchildren. So in November, we had Kathy Jacobs. Kathy, would you stand, please? Kathy came, she comes from St. Paul's, and she spoke to us and kind of gave us an overview of grandparenting, Christian grandparenting. And she had just come out with a book, which is here. For, you're welcome to buy that. It has kind of been my handbook for grandparenting since we started this. She, she does a wonderful job of laying the groundwork in the first chapter to tell you to build your own faith. You know, it's that old thing about... Don't, you, you put your own oxygen math, mask on before you put the other person's. And so she's all about your, thank you, Kathy, um, all about your um, having something to pass on to your grandchildren. So it was a powerful um, send-off for us. And in fact, one of the things that Brian said tonight was one of the things in Kathy's chapter on writing letters to your grandchildren. And um, in fact, in May, my granddaughter turned 10, and I wrote her a letter and really spoke into her, her what I felt like I had seen happen in her lifetime as a child of faith and growing and, and, um, and just becoming the, the beautiful 10-year-old that she is. And I gave her her first real Bible with commentary and um, the children's um, Jesus Calling. But these are the kinds of things that build faith in your grandchildren. So we had Kathy in November, and I highly recommend that you, you get a copy of her book because it's, it's helped me tremendously in, in my grandparenting. Then we had Sherry Schumann. Would, Sherry, would you stand? Thank you. Sherry um, spoke with us in, um, the, the second time, and her topic was the blessing, which comes from the Jewish tradition of speaking into your child 
uh, what you see the Lord has put into that child in the way of gifts and talents and unique qualities. Um, Sherry is part of the Christian Grandparenting Network out of Colorado Springs, and the man who is in charge of that, Kevin Harper, is also the person who started Grand Camp originally, and that's where Peter and, and Kathy picked up on that concept and brought it to, to Camp St. Christopher. But um, Kathy is the prayer coordinator for the Christian Grandparenting Network, and I highly recommend that you go on that website because it has a wealth of information. It also has a place that you can click on and receive a weekly prayer to pray for your grandchildren, which is I look forward to every week, so I encourage people to, to do that. Um, Sherry has also written a book and actually has written another book. She's written a novel and, and she's written a book on prayer. So we, we, right in our midst, we have people who are renowned in this grandparent, Christian grandparenting world. Um, we also had Miss Irene Rose talk with us about evangel evangelism, about sharing the gospel with your children. And um, as a result of that, one of our grandmothers who's here tonight, Tricia Moore, took from that and went home and wrote her own um, way of presenting the gospel to her grandchildren. She's a long-distance grandmother, and she was in Orlando visiting recently, and she, she shared the gospel, and she calls it kitchen talk. So kitchen church, kitchen church. And um, she recommended that her children, her son and daughter-in-law, continue this, this um, kitchen kitchen church, kitchen church, um, for devotions or for times that you absolutely cannot get to church. But I think what we're learning from these people who've had experience before us is to take it and run with it, you know, tailor make it to our own, for our, to our own needs. Um, we had Peter Rothermel talk with us about Grand Camp and so much more. Peter is a visionary. He is a man of God, he points me to the Lord every time I talk to him. We, we pray together, he encourages me, he um, challenges me. He told me recently, he said, you know, Lynn, you might want to write your own mission statement. We have a mission statement here for the, our generation's ministry at, at um, St. Philip's, which is, as a church, we encourage, empower, and equip grandparents in their God-given role of passing faith in Jesus Christ to their children, grandchildren, and future generations. So I encourage you to do the same thing, to, to write your own mission statement. As a friend of mine who's here tonight said to me, you know, if you look at our lives like it's a football game, we're kind of in the final quarter. And so we need to put all that we can into our grandchildren while we're here on earth so that there will be a legacy of faith passed through us, um, the grandparents. So Peter is here tonight, um, and he is going to share with us some of the things that we might start doing in the fall because, as Amy Watson-Smith said, um, we are being spoon-fed, and we have been through Sherry and Kathy and um, the others, Peter and Miss um, Irene Rose, but it's time for us to start feeding ourselves. So in the fall, we plan to have smaller groups where we can really dive into um, learning more about grandparenting on a personal basis and kind of the iron sharpens iron concept. So Peter is going to share some ideas with us that we might 
implement in the fall. We will continue to have larger groups like this and have, have speakers from time to time. But the other thing that I didn't mention that Sherry does um, implement is the grandparents at prayer, which is another idea that, Paul, that um, Peter can tell us a little bit about. After Peter finishes, then Amy is going to come up and talk with us about a huge resource. Normally, she shares resources with us grandparents at the end of our, our meetings like this, but tonight she's going to share the big one, the VBS. But he, let me introduce Peter Rothermel to you. And It's been quite a journey, and yes, we thank you so much, Lynn, for catching the vision and being bold to take the steps to introduce this church to uh, the grandparenting ministry. And really, the grandparenting